0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here
1: with Professor Akil Amar. Happy Easter, Akil. Happy Passover, Andy. You actually tried to teach me how to say that, and uh, it was not an altogether excess, but Chag, you know, and then Chag I, I can say, yes, it's, yeah, just, or, a, it's just a generic
0: yes. sort of happy holiday.
1: Happy um, holidays. That you can use. Um, uh, it's, so it's, uh, so not, yes, a- a- Andy has been trying, you know, but
0: <laughs> yeah, there are others. Uh There's like, there's a Yiddish uh, greeting, but we won't, uh, we won't get into that too much since I'm—I'll probably mispronounce it, and that would be very embarrassing. As opposed to the endearing mispronunciations that come from you, so okay. I'm trying. Yes. So anyway, welcome back. And of course, last time we got into some more stuff about the Trump indictment um, and this sort of thing, which we've been sort of easing into over the past few weeks. And you know, frankly, it's a—it's kind of a mixed bag there because. There are some constitutional issues, but, you know, maybe not that many, and we don't want to belabor them. Uh, on the other hand, we know everyone wants to be kept informed, and there, people have questions. So first of all, one thing I would ask our audience is we do want to be responsive to what to your concerns. So ask us questions in the uh, place provided on the website, um, akilamar.com slash podcast hyphen two. And while you're there, check out the information about the Ever Scholar courses, but um, and the links thereof are there too. Um, but this way, we can know what you don't know or what you would like to hear more about, and then that that can that can help uh, guide us on, on that one. Because frankly, I don't think we want to talk about that any more than we than we have to. I think we're all a little sick of it, and, and I don't. Uh, love the way that donald trump sucked up all the air in the room for eight years or whatever um it it only
1: seemed like eight years well
0: you know the years going up to the campaign and then even afterwards with january 6th so so yeah um and of course you know we're there again so uh, anyway but it is important and we will we'll mention a little something about it later in the episode but other things are happening quite a lot of other things so we've got a I, I, you know, you could call it a potpourri, but in fact, any one of these uh, developments uh, could probably make for their own episode. So I don't think it's it's the usual potpourri, which consists of minutia. But here, the, these are a number of of big big issues, and we'll be and, and some
1: of them are connected. Andy, um, uh, under the, uh, for example, a broad um, theme of um, ethics, which we've talked about before, and we'll talk about today.
0: Right. So judicial ethics, and uh, we're going to talk about that. And we'll we'll talk a little bit about uh, some constitutional issues related to, although not perhaps, you know, squarely on uh, the uh, cases in the states of Washington and Texas about the morning after pills, uh, abortion pills, whatever you want to call them. And uh, so we're not going to talk too much about the judge's opinion. I mean, that's going to be old news. Pretty soon, anyway, the Justice Department's already appealed to Fifth Circuit, and it's uh, stayed his his uh, the order from Texas stayed pending that anyway. So, uh, so I don't think we need to get too much into his frequent use of the term abortionist and things like that. Um, There's plenty in the media on that, but uh, but we will talk about some some issues related to that. And and you mentioned judicial ethics. The thing that comes to mind immediately is the uh, brouhaha with Justice Thomas, but there are other matters as well that that play into that.
1: So uh, why don't we start there? Yes. um, And honestly, Andy, you know, if one reads some news outlets that they're going to focus on the Thomas issue, if one reads other news outlets, they're going to focus on other judicial ethics issues, you see, and we'll talk about them all.
0: Right. Okay. So let's see. Uh, what, what would you say the issue, would you say that the things that have happened in recent uh, weeks, so let's go over them um, and we'll, let's see what they sort of boil down to. So, of course, with Justice Thomas, there's questions of that have been percolating around regarding his wife's uh, political involvement. We've touched on that briefly in the past. Um, and there's also questions now about, I suppose, disclosure of financial benefit that he received uh, from people that he uh, terms his friends. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what kind of issues does that raise? Is that issue is, are the issues re- limited to disclosure alone? He should have disclosed and he didn't, or do they go beyond that?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then the, the one that I think, uh, you know, you mentioned to me in our conversations, which I hadn't thought of, but boy, he really jumped out at me right away. Was kind of the the optics of what happened after the judicial election in Wisconsin. Now we'd been drawing attention to that election as as a very important election, and what happened there was the more progressive candidate won the election. Uh, I believe the election is nominally nonpartisan,
1: right? It's not. Yes, formally it is, mm-hmm. um, and what that means very specifically, typically maybe two metrics. Is party affiliation mentioned on the ballot? No, it's not. And is the primary process, strictly speaking, a party primary process or a slightly different primary process? Those are two metrics of whether an election is a partisan election or not. I
0: think also it's interesting because in this case, I think there was one seat of open Mm -hmm. right? And you basically had, you know, candidates for that one seat. It would be a little different if you had, let's say four seats open and maybe they were, you know, 10 candidates or something like that. You could say, and if there's no party affiliation there, it becomes even less uh, partisan. I mean, here you've got two choices. So even if they don't announce their party affiliation, there's one seat, two choices, you know, it's, it's, fairly clear that it has a partisan nature, even if they don't term themselves partisan. Whereas if you have a slate, I mean I'm thinking of our elections locally in my town, for example, where we vote for the school board. Uh, Sometimes there's only one seat open and then you pretty much know whether you're voting for people that are on one side or the other. Whereas if there are multiple seats, then it becomes a little bit different. Sometimes when you have multiple seats, people will try to affiliate with each other even mm-hmm. if they don't have technically a party, and they'll run as a slate.
1: And so, we're going to talk a little bit about affiliation and slates uh, when we talk about Wisconsin.
0: Right. So anyway, the thing that happened in Wisconsin that we're going to talk about is, I guess, this optic of the, uh, the candidate that won, the progressive candidate, was widely seen on national media, sort of arm in arm with, uh, with other sitting judges, justices justices. yes um all at
1: her victory celebration all for raising their arms hands together hands clasped in a an image that's very common at political conventions but not so much um, in judicial selections and until now but we're moving into a new world
0: okay and that's so that has so is that an ethical question would you say
1: Yeah. It's a question about how how we think about what judges should and shouldn't do and not just judges, but would be judges. Oh, and the third one, Andy, you keep trying to forget it.
0: Uh, Yes. yes, You're right. I'm I'm trying to forget it. Oh yeah. Oh man. Uh, yes. The, 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 because you don't read
1: Fox and I do.
0: No, it's all over the place now. Okay. Um, the, the judge in the, uh, in the Trump case in New York, uh, with his political contributions that have been kind of come to light. I mean, first of all, who gives a $10 contribution when, when it's obviously fraught. I mean, so, so the judge gave three contributions. I think this is what I know of at this point. He gave $25 to the Biden campaign and in 2020, and he gave $10 to something about progressive something or other. And then, another $10 to another organization, which was related to the progressive something or other organization, which was called something like stop Republicans, you know, or something like that. So for a total of $45 worth of worthless contributions, we've, we've got, uh, you know, food for Donald Trump's accusations of corruption, bias, whatever. Um, so the analyses that I've seen of that have said that it's unlikely to be grounds for recusal, but this this leads us into general questions about recusal.
1: Yes. So, and, which and, of course, and optics and all sorts of things.
0: And of course, you have a theory about this, don't you? I have a theory about everything, yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: And what is your theory? Okay, this is like uh, an elk in uh, Monty Python. An elk has the theories of the brontosaurus. Mm-hmm. Okay, now let's start with all the stories about uh, Justice Thomas. And uh, I'm going to say the following my friend, Justice Thomas, he is my friend and the audience deserves to know that and discount my views um, uh, appropriately. But I also mention it because what we're going to talk about are in part the judicial ethics of friendship. There are all sorts of kinds of friendship, our audience knows that I co-filed with my friend, Steve Calabresi, founder of the Federal Society, who does not speak for the Federal Society, and my friend, Vic Amar, who also happens to be my kid brother, Vic Amar, helped by my friends, Andy Lipka and Chris Duggan, above all others, and my amazing TA team at Yale. And these are my students who I do count as my friends. We together filed an amicus brief, an amicus is short uh, for amicus curiae, which is Latin for friend of the court, or maybe amici, actually, friends of the court, amici curiae, to be more precise. The three of us were the formal filers of a brief that described ourselves as friends of the court. No, not friends of uh, this person or that person, this justice or that person, but of uh, the court as a well. um, and and I do see myself as a friend of the court. I also happen to be friends of most of the justices in just a more colloquial, conventional sense. And Andy, this podcast is all about, frankly, you and me. You know, if if this were a Paul McCartney song, it would be you know, two of us, which is an amazing song. I, we should we should put up a link. To it or maybe in the outro you can do that it's it's a paul mccartney song it's off of let it be um and yeah it's it's about i think at least two people in his mind it's about linda but it's also about john and 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 both of them are, are special so andy this podcast is about you and me and about our friendship that's that's how the podcast means so i want to talk about the ethics the judicial ethics in particular of friendships so that's one of the elements of my theory that we're going to talk about today is how to think about how to theorize friendships, different categories. And the big legal ethics distinction that I, I want to bring to everyone's attention is the distinction between disclosure and the obligations to disclose as a matter of ethics and um, and regulation and recusal. Those are two different things they sometimes overlap but my claim my theory is going to be in all sorts of situations including friendship situations sometimes there may be an obligation to disclose but not recuse other times they may be an obligation to recuse but not in advance annually disclose in any way so let's just let's just think about that let's think about friendships because Clarence Thomas in his response to criticism has described in qu- a question and, and the person's spouse is among the Thomas's quote, dearest friends. And they've been friends for um, over the, I think the family of the crows is there, the crow is the last name, Mr. and Mrs. Crow. And they have been friends of the Thomases, Justice Thomas and his spouse, Justice Clarence Thomas and his spouse, Jenny Thomas for in the justices words over a quarter century among our dearest friends. And Justice Thomas thinks this is important and relevant in thinking about the relevant issues and the optics, and we'll talk about all of that. So let me begin by hypothesizing a a certain situation. Someone is a very close friend of yours, but they never ever litigate a case before the Supreme court. Okay. And there may be, in certain situations, obligations of disclosure, and that, um, but I don't know how recusal necessarily would come up if they're not a litigant, not either a lawyer or a party. Contrary-wise, um, I could imagine a situation, again, listen, just take a friendship. There obviously wouldn't be any annual disclosure requirement of, of, of a certain sort, but there might, in certain situations, be a recusal obligation. And then there are questions about whether, when one recuses, whether one has to give the reasons at the time of recusal or not. That would be a certain kind of disclosure, but not an annual one, subject to you know various regulations. Okay. So, and then there are all sorts of kinds of friendship, and and one distinction that we we're going to talk about are not just how long one has been, someone has been a friend. And Thomas says this has been a, a long-standing friendship over a quarter century. But oh, when friendships are rare in the world, and when you have you know, a long-standing friendship, that, that's something to, that's a real blessing. You know, today is Easter for me, and I'm, I, I count, I'm thinking of all my, my blessings. So the length of the friendship is relevant. But another important distinction, part of my a theory, if you will, is whether the friendship predates one's service as a judge or justice, or whether it began afterward. That, that might be, you know, a, a, an interesting fact to focus on in certain situations. Okay, so let's, Andy, first, just because this is a Marcus Constitution and we want this to be fun, let's talk about our friendship, okay. yours and mine. So it's not a childhood friendship. It doesn't go all the way back. When you had your 65th birthday party, there were 12 people there, as I remember, at a great restaurant, Chinese food restaurant in, in New York. And they were couple, six couples. And Vinita and I came down from um, New Haven and then uh, drove back. So you and Wendy, that was one couple. So you invited five other couples, five of your friends and their spouses. And now if I remember right, Andy, three of the five were were childhood friends, right? Correct.
0: One of them I met when he hit me over the head with his cast in second grade, but from his broken arm. (laughs)
1: Love at first sight. (laughs) So, or first fight um uh, was it intentional probably <laughs> <laughs> you are a we got we got soul. sent to
0: the principal together and then we we were sitting there talking and that and we became friendly
1: Oh, I tickled Ricky Olson when we were in line in, I think, kindergarten, and we both got sent to the principal's office. And it wasn't Ricky Olson's fault. It was mine, you know, and I shouldn't have done it. But he had a track record. And so we got sent because this was like his fifth, you know, infraction. The principal, Mr. Bartlett, actually took out. This is the old days, a ruler, you know, (laughs) uh, and it had Mr. Olson's name on it, you know, and that ruler was like, you know, to either, you know, uh, paddle him or, you know, wrap his knuckles or something like that. And, and, Oh, I was on the straight row versus since that. Once I saw that ruler, my eyes were like saucers. I never want to go to the principal's office again if that's what happens. Okay, but it was totally my fault, Ricky. If you're out there, you know, mea culpa. I'm not sure, like, I ever publicly, you know, told people that you were just the the tickle, not the tickler. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, okay, but three of the five were childhood friends, and two more recent. Okay. Um so um now um if I were a judge, obviously I'm not, um it would be um weird for me to annually have to disclose a list of all my close friends in the world, you know, whether childhood friends or more recent friends. Andy you no know, uh, Be an odd regulation. Please list all the people that you talk to in person, you know, or uh, otherwise, um, electronically, on average more than an hour a day. Okay, you you could imagine such a a rule that wouldn't capture all friendships, but it would capture, you know, people that are talkative ones. Influencing you in some way, mm-hmm. okay? And Andy, I'd have to list you. I think. I think we we average more than an hour a day, especially if you count you know all the podcast stuff. You know, sure. preparing for it, uh, uh doing it, and editing it afterwards. Yeah. Um, taking out all me. my bloopers, huh? Lucky me. <laughs> and right, right back at you, okay? Um, I couldn't. You could imagine such a, a, a regulation, but I know of no such regulation, okay? Or imagine. You know, a regulation list all the people that you've ever had over, you know, to your house as um, overnight guests or vice versa, mm-hmm. you know. and yeah, It's much analogous
0: to, to list all the countries you've visited, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. Um, you have and to do I, when you I,
0: apply for passports and things like uh, that. Uh,
1: Okay. But I'd have to list you. You've been an overnight guest at my house and you'd have to list me. Suppose, okay, we're going even a little more, you know, you have shared a room with. Okay. Now this is getting a little, you know, edgy, but audience, don't worry. This is totally PG. Yes. When we were on the road together, I think that we, there was a time that we were in the same hotel room, separate beds. I hasten to, to add, but. I can tell the audience. Yes, the the reason
0: that it never gets repeated.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we we did this once. Mm -hmm. And I love Andy, but oh my God, he snores. Uh, As in, you know, think of buzzsaw, chainsaw, you know, um, 747, you know, on the tarmac or or something. Uh, My wife is an angel. (laughs) Okay, but like Andy, because we're friends, I like know things about you. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and now so know. does the
0: podcast audience. Thank you.
1: <laughs> now, yes, you're all friends of Andy. Okay, but the point is, it would be weird if there were annual disclosure obligations, uh, just in the case of of close friends. But it would not be weird if I were a judge and you were a litigant. I might have to say, Andy is such a dear friend. He's so close to me. He's you know like family and more that it really would not be appropriate for me to be a judge in Andy's case. It wouldn't be fair to the legal system. wouldn't be fair to my colleagues. It it wouldn't be fair to the opposing litigant. Okay, so there's a situation, it's a friendship situation, whether longstanding or more recent, childhood or, or not, where there's no disclosure obligation, but I would say there is a recusal obligation. Now, that's if you're a litigant. Now, suppose, Andy, you weren't a litigant. I'm the judge. You were the lawyer for one of the parties. I think my position would be the same. At a certain point, someone can be so close to you that you shouldn't be hearing the case. You should recuse yourself. Now, let me introduce, what about instead if someone isn't, if I'm the judge again, you're, the, you're not a litigant, you're not the lawyer for one of the parties, But you file an amicus brief with the permission of the court. Now, I think there I would take a different position. I would say, you know, a bunch of situations where I would have needed to recuse if Andy was the lawyer or the litigant. But just as an amicus, no, he's not representing a party. He's just representing um, a theory of the law. And it's not, frankly, very different. Um, It's technically a little different, but it's not that different than if Andy writes an op-ed. In the New York Times saying, here's how the court should rule. Let's imagine that Andy is, uh, you know, a law professor or an expert in some way. Okay. Now, why am I mentioning all of that? First of all, I'm going to tell you actually how the rules have changed over time. So first, just on that, from my book, America's Unwritten Constitution, here's a footnote. It's chapter one. It's footnote 27. And it actually uh, quotes one of my own friends, San- Sandy Levinson. And he was such a close friend. Oh, he stayed overnight at our house as a guest. Our um, guest room, actually, for many years, was actually known as the Levinson room because Sandy and Cynthia would come over regularly to visit us. Their daughter was a an undergrad at Yale and played in the orchestra. And they would come to listen to her and visit with us. So much so once, Andy, I remember, Vinita and I were just sitting in the, at the kitchen table. And it's 10 p.m., and all of a sudden, the front door opens, you know, because they had a key and we didn't realize they were coming over. And I'm like, what the hell is happening? You know, it's 10 p.m. and someone's just, you know, busting into my house. Okay, uh, footnote 27. Professor Sanford Levinson has provocatively identified a 19th century pattern in which, now these aren't friends, these are relatives, Justice Brockhorst Livingston, participated in circuit court litigation involving the New York steamboat monopoly, even though his brother, Robert Livingston, was the holder of the monopoly in question. Okay. Justice Levi Woodbury once heard on circuit an important case in which the lawyer for one of the litigants was his son, Charles Woodbury. Chief Justice Tawney declined to recuse himself when his brother-in-law, Francis Scott Key, yes, that Francis Scott Key, Star-Spangled Banner argued before the court. And David Dudley Field argued three of the most important cases involving national power over the defeated Confederacy before a court that included his brother, Stephen J. Field. Okay. And in the previous episode, you remember there's John Marshall and James Marshall and back in Marbury versus Madison. John Marshall had his own issues. Also, his brother was involved in the litigation as a as a witness, in effect. Okay. So the rules of recusal have changed over time and become more strict i think today we would say all of those situations are real no-nos your brother your brother-in-law your son no you shouldn't be hearing now let me say one a lot of these
0: these rules you know you talk about them as rules but in fact they're not really rules um there are some rules some things that you just can't do but some of them are more that the judge should use their their judgment and things like mm-hmm. that. It's their not, principles, so, they a rule, um, so, norms. So, uh-huh. would you say that the principle has changed, or in other words, was this prin did this principle still apply? Then they just didn't. They just ignored it.
1: I think we're stricter, and I'll tell you why. Um, but I do re- uh, remember this line from Pirates of the Caribbean. I think this was one where. Someone says someone invokes parley, and 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 the pirate doesn't recognize parley, and, and parley is an important. It's like a truce flag, and, you know, and it's part of the pirate's code that you have to, you know, recognize the right of parley, which is which is when someone comes to talk to you under as or a flag of truce, you got to then let them return, okay? And you know, parley, you know, and then the, he, the the guy is you know tied up anyway, and he says the pirate's code, you know, and the other fellow says the pirate's code be more like. Guidelines, <laughs> okay, so not, not rules, okay. On the other side, and this is one of the reasons I think we become more strict is the so-called rule of necessity. Sometimes we allow someone to be a judge because someone has to be a judge. Now, in a world where frankly, there's a smaller a legal community, intelligentsia, more people are connected in one way or another to, uh, to other people in the, the, the elite. And you might just worry that too many people are going to have to recuse if we have too strict a standard. Because Jefferson, for example, is John Marshall's second cousin, which he is. Um, mm-hmm. And everyone knows everyone. Okay. Now, why do I mention now the rule of necessity? Oh, Andy, I just came up with a 19th reason, I think what this wasn't one of the eighteen, for 18 years. Because if we adopted the Mar Lipka plan of 18 years for full-time service by Supreme Court justices, the people after their 18 years would be senior justices who would be available to do all sorts of things, including circle writing, but also pinch hit in cases where the court is short staffed. And the court is short staffed not just in cases of, of, of death or resignation until there's a replacement, but also in cases, case by case of recusal. And right now, justices might, at the margins, in a close case, hesitate to recuse because that's going to leave the court short-staffed. It's going to be 8-8-8. Eight, eight, And if the circuits are split and the court is split four, four, now there's a circuit split that continues. And federal judges on the West Coast are saying one stupid thing. I'm joking a little bit, but, you know, about um, this abortion pill and judges in Texas are saying a different stupid thing in a, you know, in a conflicting, arguably stupid thing about the thing. What is the FDA going to do when one court tells them you must do X and another court uh, in a different part of the country says you shan't, you you cannot do X and Today, what you do is get to the Supreme Court pronto to resolve that split. Oh, but now the court is split four, four. Okay, so one of the in in legal ethics, there is a phrase that if unless there's a duty to recuse some justice, there's a duty not to recuse because you're putting more pressure on the system. Now, that's not true for lower courts because you can get get someone else to, to, to substitute and pinch hit. It's really at a trial court or court of appeals, if one judge recuses, you just have someone else fill in. At the Supreme Court today, if one justice recuses, that's eight and and that's a problem. But in a Mars world, you know, and, and we've had previous episodes on that, you have a cadre of folks just at the ready who know the drill, who know how to be Supreme Court justices full time and can just slide in. At the margins, you can have actually stricter recusal rules there's less of a necessity that each justice participate you know whenever it's it's possible
0: yeah although i think that uh i'm I'm not sure that would reduce friction quite frankly because you know at eight eight um so the the other four four eight, eight four four with eight justices there are eight justices that would have heard the case anyway so um, whereas if you're putting another justice on the case, so sometimes a conservative justice will be replaced by a liberal justice, and that mm-hmm. might actually make them more hesitant to recuse themselves if they than if they were just going to recuse, and it's the usual other eight justices. So um, you know so so they're tipping the balance rather possibly. Uh, in a way that wouldn't happen. So, depending on the case, it, it would depend it could, on the case. It could right. increase friction or it could decrease. You're not going to be able to let, I don't think you would want the justice that's recusing themselves to be able to designate which justice out of the pool of, you know, of. Correct. No, that, that'd be the same, you'd have some of the same problems. Yes, right. I, I, right. I think. So, well. So I think you're right that it's it's good to have another option. It's good to to eliminate the problem that it would be shorthanded, but in a way you're creating another. Well, problem. we could
1: have we could have stricter mandatory recusal rules yes. um, under the theory, and so it's not just yes your your decision in a close call if you, you're the justice that's been asked to recuse or is contemplating recusal. We could just have maybe even stricter guidelines inviting more vigorous recuse. Now, that's going to create some other problems. You're absolutely right, because if the the pinch hitter now generates a 5-4 outcome that's precedent in the case, but it doesn't sit on the court thereafter, and now when the recused justice comes back in and has a different view, pressure to overrule that precedent and all the rest, which happens, of course, when there's turnover on the court and other things.
0: You know, you could have I don't think this would ever happen, but you could have something similar to what they do in Congress where they pair up. If somebody can't make it, you know, for a vote or something like that, they ask someone on the other side
1: to also not show up. Right. But but again, and we'll talk about this in Wisconsin, this, this um, idea of sides on the court is making me very, very nervous. Well, there's a certain reality to
0: it, but then, but but, but but perhaps not as much as everyone thinks.
1: uh, And, but we, we, I promise, Congress for hundreds of years, more than has had sides. It's a Mm two-party system. There's literally an aisle, and you're on one side of the aisle or not. And in the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, I actually wrote a piece about how that's not true on the court. There is no aisle, and so the court is formally and in reality different. The, the The idea of two parties is literally built into the architecture of the capitol building is it's seating and that's just not the court okay we've been talking just a bit about recusal versus um, disclosure i'm gonna say more about disclosure i've been talking about recusal but remember i introduced another idea that recusal rules would be different if your friend is a litigant or a lawyer as opposed to a mere amicus or Let's call them an influencer, you know, an op-ed writer or something like that. Now, since this is a Marcus Constitution, cards on the table, full disclosure, if you will. I'm not recusing myself in this podcast, (laughs) even though Justice Thomas is my friend. I'm talking about it. Yeah, they might be left with me. That
0: wouldn't be very good.
1: (laughs) But full disclosure, Andy. Yes, I do consider myself... I want to be an influencer. I do. I, I write things. I never litigate. I never take money to litigate. I'm not a lawyer before the court for a party. I'm, I've never been a party in the court, but I have views on the law and I want those views ideally to influence people who are in a position to count like the justices. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's not improper for someone to try to be an influencer in the right way. Here's how I'm trying to influence them. Not by money, not even by friendship. Know, although we are, I am friendly with some of the justices, and I'll give you full disclosure um, here as well. I'm trying to influence them with reasons, with arguments. Okay, But now on just friendships i am personally friendly with several of the justices was friendly with them even before they were justices you know elena kagan is a professor at harvard and i'm a professor at yale and we both teach constitutional law and we do think we've done things together we've been at uh, events together and and she was my boss at the harvard law school when i was visiting and my son vic on his 10th birthday, asked her for her autograph as, you know, a, a birthday present. And and she said to him, no one's ever asked me for my autograph before. I said, well, Elena, you re- remember this moment because we're betting on you. Lots of people are gonna be asking for your autograph. So in past episodes, I, I've slipped into just using her first name because she's my friend and former. Boss, and she was Neil's boss at in the Solicitor General's office, and they, and Neil was, um, and I introduced them to uh, to each other, and actually told her at a certain point, "You're going to love working with Neil," because she didn't know Neil, and I told Neil, "Oh, you're going to love working with Elena," because I knew them each before they knew each other, and they became very good friends. Oh, and Neil argues as a lawyer before the court in front of his former boss and friend Elena Kagan, and oh, we were in the court and saw it in the ISL case. Okay, she's. Obviously friendly with Prologger and others. It's a small world. Okay. I think I've told our audience that I, I absolutely adore Sonia Sotomayor and knew her before she was a justice. And the first time we met, it was at a, a weekend conference in, 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 Malibu. And by the end of that conference, I felt as if she was one of my best friends from high school. You know, it, it was, she's just such a warm and, and caring person. And yeah, the world knows that I knew. Brett Kavanaugh before he was a justice, because I actually testified on his behalf, um, in the confirmation hearings. This was before the Christine Blasey Ford thing. And I, you know, didn't take a public position on that because I didn't know anything ab- about that. But there are others. Um, but I'm just mentioning that as four examples. And I picked those three in particular because I knew them before they were justices. Some of the others I got to know after, you know, obviously I knew Stephen Breyer before he was a justice. I, I clerked for him. I spent a year of my life with him. He was my mentor, um, still is. I count him as a friend, a very you know, good friend. Um, um, so does that mean that they would have to recuse themselves if I were even a lawyer in front of them? No, uh, they, you know, they're not my brothers. Um, there is a court rule, or sisters, that if you've clerked for a justice, you actually aren't supposed to argue before the court, I think, either for two, year, two years or three years. There's, a, there's actually a, a cooling off period. And there's actually a rule on that, but but after that, obviously, Neil argued cases before, in, um, among others, the person for whom he clerked, Steve Breyer.
0: Okay. Right, and it's obvious that it wouldn't be in in everyone's interest to have clerks that could never argue before the the court, because then no one would want a clerk for the court.
1: The, the rule of necessity, now you're seeing this, you know, we're, I, I, we're you know, showing folks just how this ecosystem actually operates up close. Now, here's the fact that I figured out in contemplation of this podcast, because you and I did a little uh, discussion um, earlier today. I am not just trying to influence the justices. I am in books, in law review articles, in public op-eds, and none of that is X. Ex- RT. This is not calling someone up on the phone privately, it's writing things that are available to all the litigants on all sides saying, here is my view of this or that or the other thing, either long before the issue ever gets before the court, or even when the case is pending, you know, I can write an op-ed, which is why I said a formal amicus brief isn't that different from an op-ed that one writes when there's a specific case under consideration. And when the op-ed is all about that case, like when we do podcasts about ISL, even before we filed the ISL brief, well, it's uh, you know I think, and
0: you were pretty meticulous about it when we went to the court uh, to observe the oral argument in the Moore versus Harper case. They we we got seated. We didn't choose our seats. They just seated us at a particular and we place. We got seated like right next to the clerks, and and you know you knew a lot. You know, numerous of the clerks they were your yes. students, and and some they, of them I had written clerkship letters of recommendation for. And you you said, I'm not going to talk to them. I'm not even going to say hello to them. You sort of nodded your head,
1: but that
0: was it yes. you know that
1: I mean, yes not c- even any the- exchange of words mm-hmm. would be awkward because i don't want because c- appearances are important i wouldn't want any justice to think i was trying to exercise improper influence i never ever initiate any phone call whatsoever to a justice or to a clerk and, and i don't want the justices ever to think that i'm trying to insinuate moles into their chambers or anything like that so i'm very very scrupulous about this yes to questions of influence so so what
0: really i think what you're saying here is that there are types of influence that are legitimate correct and by implication there may be types of of influence that are
1: inappropriate exactly so that's exactly what i wanted to get at but here was the fact that i you know that came to mind see i'm not only i am i'm being honest trying to influence the justice but in a in a permissible way because i have views about what is the the right legal answer to this question or that question or the right legal method to all sorts of questions now i mean there um, really
0: isn't that much difference in terms of the type of influence that you're attempting to have than a counsel is trying to have when they stand up and make an argument before the court
1: there the difference a- is they're representing a party, and that's very, you know, as a matter of form, very different than if I'm simply representing my understanding of the yes, law. But as from a legal an expert. ethical
0: point of view, I don't see that there's that much difference. In other words, there, there aren't really, if anything, the advocate is more, one might say, confl- potentially conflicted
1: because they have. An obligation to their client, which may they go do. against their argument. Correct, yeah. and and that's why um, it's a little different than to someone who simply presents himself or herself as a, as an expert. Um, right, so uh, you're
0: more objective, not less. In that yes. Sense. Oh, yes. But that's so, why we have stricter
1: yeah. we we have stricter rules. Mm-hmm. If I were a lawyer or a party, uh, mm-hmm. then um, if I'm merely an amicus or an op ed writer, the fact that I figured out is, and I'm audience. I apologize in advance, but you know I'm honest. I'm ridiculously proud of the of the fact that I'm cited by the justices, and usually favorably, and not unfavorably. But it's not just that. I'm I'm and this. And if you look at my website, you know the, the first or second sentence says. I'm cited more by the justices than anyone else under 65. <laughs> I am 64 and a half. So. Yeah, that's
0: going to change soon. <laughs> just to let our audience know, we're actually going to come back to this and actually present a, a specific case where you were cited just over the last couple
1: of weeks. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, by this uh, Iowa Supreme Court, mm-hmm. um, one of the justices. Andy, I was actually just, and I hadn't ever done the the, the data before. I've been cited, and I say across the spectrum, uh, the political spectrum the divide that you talked about but actually by each of the ju- sitting justices or the person in case of um, most junior justices that that justice replaced because you, you you have more citation possibilities the longer you've been on the court
0: well so, katangi so, brown jackson can't have cited anyone yet yeah
1: but Breyer, else. for whom whom she replaced you know, has cited me, and let's start with that side. We'll start from left to to right. So, Ketanji Brown Jackson, not yet. I, I I'm so such an optimist. Not, not. You know, no, but not yet. Mm-hmm. Okay, Justices Sotomayor and and Kagan replaced Justices Souter and and Stevens, and I don't think Justices Sotomayor or Kagan have have sided me, but but Justices Souter and Stevens did. And now, you know, from the other side, working way down from most senior, John Roberts has. He's the most senior ex officio, and Clarence Thomas has, and Sam Alito has. Gorsuch actually has, but, and also the person whom he replaced, Scalia. And Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit has, but um, I don't know, can't remember on the Supreme Court, but the person he, he replaced, Justice Kennedy, absolutely. And Amy Coney Barrett uh, has not, maybe even the Court of Appeals can't remember, but definitely the, the justice whom she replaced, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg did. So that's all nine, Andy. Either they cited me or the person that they replaced cited me. And yes, I'm ridiculously proud of that fact. I'm trying to influence the court. This podcast is trying, you know, in a way to influence the court. If there are clerks out there, I don't think there's anything inappropriate with your listening to this podcast. It's, it's open, it's public, it's not different from an op-ed, it's not like an ex-party communication, and it's not directed, you know, to, to clerk X or to, you know, clerk Y, it, it's just, these are my views on the law more generally, and I'm sharing them with the world publicly. The word ex party basically is a no-no. It's it's a private communication, and these are, and I, this podcast is a public service. Oh, an audience, it's a public service brought to you by my friend, Andy Lipka, okay? And there's nothing wrong with certain kinds of friendship. There's, you know, there are blessings and there's nothing wrong with certain kinds of influence. Certain things need to be disclosed. And in fact, this podcast discloses itself to the world. An op-ed discloses itself to the world. An amicus brief is out there for everyone to see. There's nothing, you know, improper about this. And that's, that's different from other kinds of influence that are improper. So, okay, now we're going to talk about um, j- just a little bit more. So I've talked about an obligation to recuse but not disclose of a certain sort. You might, you know, a, you're a, a, a personal friendship need, doesn't need to be annually disclosed, but it might trigger a recusal obligation. On the flip side, and this may be the crow situation, there may be obligations to disclose but not recuse. Why not recuse? Because so far as we're aware, and this is a key, key fact, audience, The Crows have not litigated before the court as parties, so far as I know or anyone knows, at least in in the articles that I've read, nor have they been in, in the court as lawyers. If they never litigate before the court, you say, well, why then do we even have a disclosure requirement of any sort? And say, well, we might have a disclosure requirement precisely so that the rest of us can be aware of the need to recuse, you know, in some hypothetical future situation. So let's take, for example, uh, a situation where there's not merely a friendship, there's actually money um, and not merely someone inviting you into their home um, and their home actually might be a mansion might be you know actually a a beautiful compound some people you know have beautiful estates it might even I I suppose be a yacht I don't think I've ever been on a yacht Andy um but you know that's a floating home of a certain I I, I've been on a houseboat but it was it was moored at the dock and it was not a yacht it was a Mm -hmm. you know it was actually pretty dinky little thing but it was kind of cool to be on a houseboat it was one of my high school teachers one of my favorite high school teachers who had a houseboat Let's imagine actually, oh, it's not just personal hospitality, you know, a friend inviting you into their home or onto their even yacht. But, and let's even imagine it's an entity and not an individual. And you're getting money. There is a law school and they give you an award as Justice X. And they give you $5,000. And in order to get that award and the $5,000, you actually have to show up at the law school and give um, a little speech at commencement or something, and and you are the honorary degree recipient, and they even give you more than the honor, they give you some money, should you be disclosing it? Yeah, I think you should. Does that trigger a recusal obligation? It might, if we're a significantly large amount of money. Let's imagine, though, just to make it an interesting hypothetical, you got the exact same honor, the exact same award from two different universities, one notoriously liberal, you know, one notoriously conservative. Now, if in some weird lawsuit the two law schools actually were suing each other or something, you might say you got money from one. But but if you got money from each and it was exactly the same, would that cancel out or not? That's the sort of cool thing I would put in the law school hypothetical, you mm-hmm. see. Um, um, but I'm just imagining though, there are situations where you would have an obligation to recuse and not disclose. And contrary-wise, you might have obligations to disclose but never recuse because there's never any litigation involving the uh, the entity or the person as a lawyer or as a party. Now, I'll tell you, I'll say two or three other things just on the Thomas matter, just in the interest of kind of analytic completeness. Some of the optics are relevant, and here are some of the issues. Just one is there's a lot of resentment in the world against um, people on whom fortune uh, whom fortune has favored just rich people um, and politicians actually uh, aware that not everyone is doing well, try to gin up resentment and and Democrats try to gin up resentment against rich people. And Republicans try to gin up resentment against highly educated um, elites and, and, and cultural elites. Conservatives sometimes demagogue against the Ivy League in Hollywood. And Democrats sometimes demagogue against, you know, the, the corporate fat cats. Um, but, but some of what's going on is like, if people say, well, I don't have a yacht. You know, none of my friends have a yacht. None of my friends have, you know, a private jet, a bombardier. And none of my friends have a 105-acre estate um, with uh, a main house and all sorts of beautiful guest houses. I understand the optics, but actually, there's nothing evil about having wealthy friends, it seems um, to me. And I have some wealthy friends. But when we went for the book launch of The Words That Made Us, at um, the AEI event, there were billionaires in the room and, and some of them actually were my friends and still are my friends. And there's nothing I, I actually uh, a couple of my classmates, um, Yale College classmates are, are billionaires um, and they're nice friends to have. You know, thank you very much for you know inviting me to your place uh, for a Fourth of July event. And, and some of them have. But the optics, there's just a lot of resentment. Um, so that's part of it. Second issue is, well, the other where you thing aff- is
0: if you have, if you have those kinds of resources, the potential for using the resources to influence you in inappropriate ways is greater than someone that doesn't have those resources. Right. But
1: remember, if you've never litigated at all as a party or a lawyer, you know, okay, now but, uh, I'm just but, identifying some of the issues. Right, Let me but just, before
0: uh, we leave that, that standard that you keep repeating about you haven't litigated. I, I understand that it is the standard, but isn't it a little naive to think that the the output of the court influences only the parties? It, you know, in other words, it has effect, on, or maybe not influence—the right word—but but affects uh, you know only everyone. The parties. Yes, right. and, but I as and an it influencer, may affect rich people differentially,
1: or it my, may affect rich people and, and with but, but, you know with but, private uh, jets influence. Sure, uh, influence. but as uh, uh, but 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 if I had not merely an amicus brief. Or an op-ed, but I actually owned the New York Times. I'd still be able to actually, you know, every day blast my message out, and I'm trying to influence the court. And as long as the New York Times doesn't litigate, you know, that's a permissible kind of influence. Right, but
0: earlier we, we, we made the point that there were different zones of influence, that, that, yes. that persuasion, you know, through argument— is one for speech, you know, for lack of a better term is one, you know, zone of influence, but money, you know, or, um, or access, you know, or
1: things like okay, that. So, so money is qualitatively different, but, Oh, access. I don't know Andy, because people are allowed to have friends and, mm-hmm. and so look, the senators, four senators are my students. And I'm there when the cameras sometimes I've been, I've testified before the Senate many times and the cameras are on and some people, oh, they're totally different when the cameras are on and when the cameras are off. I've been to fundraisers and all sorts of things. You know, I, I tend not to give, but, but sometimes I'm actually just doing a presentation or something. My contribution is in kind. I'm, you know, a, a fundraisers come to hear me give a talk about something and then they contribute to the candidate. The candidates. Senators and and House members, many of them are very wealthy themselves and pal around with wealthy people. And if you're talking about access, their friends are wealthy and they do fundraisers at at nice mansions. And, you know, again, I haven't been on a yacht. I'm sure they do fundraisers on yachts themselves.
0: Well, when when you talk about access, um, you know, earlier we talked about the fact that you wrote an amicus brief. And one of the considerations when we wrote the amicus brief, when you wrote it, was are they going to read it? Okay, and you know you had various reasons for believing that they were going to read it because you had people from both sides of great repu- great uh, reputation that were writing and so forth. Um, but Joe Schmo, a citizen, may have difficulty getting his opinion
1: heard by Clarence that's true. Thomas, and that's why I'm being honest. I see some right. of us have more influence than others. Right. And so the question
0: is: so you've achieved your influence by virtue of. Of, of excellence, let's say. Um, but but should let's you be achieve, honest, Andy. But can I, you, I, should you be able to purchase that influence?
1: Okay, so let, let, that's a great question. I think money is different. But if I'm being totally honest, and I'm not going to go into it again, I'm actually friendly with some of these folks. It's mm-hmm. not just um, my um, articles, and and I and I'm not trying to schmooze them. I actually like them as human beings. And here's a test: I recently just had some exchanges with a former justice, several former justices, in fact. So cards on the table. I think at least three of the four former justices, just um, I've been in touch with, you know, human to human: Justice Kennedy, Justice Breyer, for whom I clerked, Justice Souter and i say nice things about them behind their backs and i say nice things about them to their faces cuz they're actually my friends they're not trying to spin me i'm not trying to spin them they're just people who, who i care about in life i don't spend as much time with them as i spend with you andy but when you say access i'm being honest yes I'm, it's, it's that you, we can't require judges to live in a bubble and have no friends
0: All right so but you know having access to dinner is not necessarily the same as having access to what you talk about over dinner
1: right and i don't actually talk um when i'm talking to them and, and you saw that andy when we went to dc and i didn't even i barely made eye contact right. with so, clerks so good for you
0: but you know but what about people that are paying money to Ginny thomas's pack or whatever i don't know that she even has a pack i'm just you know speculating um that uh, And they're paying that money because they want Clarence Thomas to be at the dinner and hear what they have to say about this issue that's going to be before the court. And it's it's getting to... Clarence Thomas, because they're talking to Ginny Thomas about the January sixth protesters and the, and
1: the you know legitimacy of the election, and he's sitting there at the dinner. Right. And he, so so th- so hang, hang on. So so one of the issues that I wanted to identify is that they're complicated issues of spouses, and especially mm-hmm. in today's world where, unlike the founders' world, women are politically equals. And that wasn't true at the founding. Abigail Adams is a great advisor to John Adams, but she has to kind of keep it on, you know, kind of more quiet in a way that Eleanor Roosevelt doesn't, or Hillary Clinton when she was first lady um, doesn't, or Michelle Obama. So the the roles of political women have changed, in part because of the 19th Amendment, really importantly, and that's wonderful. But the New York Times spends money... To actually get its ideas out there, and um, and they they're hoping that the justices read their op eds, and and they're spending money to 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 do that. It's not and going other- to
0: the judge, to the judge, justice that money.
1: Oh well, you were you talking about two. There are two different things mm-hmm. that we talked right. about. One was access, yes. and and just in, just in terms of access, mm-hmm. lots of people you know are are seeking access of of a certain sort, and I don't think that access is completely improper, if one never discusses a case. If one discusses a case, that's ex parte. So now, Andy, we're identifying a useful distinction between personal contact and, which is proper even, you know, you're never in a room with everyone else in the world. You're in a room with some people, not with other people, but it's not ex parte, you know, unless you actually discuss the case. The second thing that you identified is, Money that goes into someone's pocket and not necessarily the justice, but what about the justice's spouse? And that's money is different. Then, so we're now distinguishing between access and money. Those are two different things. You know, obviously, I've never tried to influence the justices with money, but I am trying to publicly influence them with this podcast, with op-eds, with books and articles and actually with amicus briefs.
0: we out a couple of things here. We're talking about disclosure, and we're talking about recusal. Yes, and, that's the big, big distinction. Right. And one tends to think of recusal as kind of the more uh, important line. You know, that, that, well, if you didn't disclose it, okay, you know, we we want to know, but the reason we want to know is so that we know when you should recuse yourself.
1: Exactly. You know, so you just did it. That, that's, and I should have said that more clearly. So thank you, Andy, for making, putting a pin in that. Even if there weren't an obligation of recusal, I would say in addition, disclosure might just give the rest of the world information about you and where you're coming from and in your mm-hmm. colleagues even that that might be relevant just even if you didn't have an obligation to recuse we might discount certain things we're allowed to make our judgments most importantly disclosure helps enforce recusal norms it's easier for the rest of us to hold you to account it's also even if there were never a recusal obligation we could just Ask questions about whether you spend too much time with this set of influencers rather than that set of influencers. Let me tell, say one other thing on that, Andy. I'd love our audience to watch, if they are so inclined, a one-hour interview that I did with Justices Sotomayor and Barrett. It was a year ago almost a year ago, maybe even this month, this week, possibly, it was the first, it was had been arranged long in advance by an organization actually uh, loosely affiliated, I believe, with Ronald Reagan or with conservatives. It's a Washington, D.C. organization. I'm just blocking on the specifics. And they had arranged to have Justice Sotomayor and Justice Barrett interviewed together. So they put the thing together and then they were looking for An MC, the moderator, the Andy Lipka, the the interviewer, and they picked me. I didn't reach out. They picked me um, to play Phil Donahue, as it were. And I was very flattered, and I did it. Now, that was arranged months in advance. It turns out, Andy, that that was the first time that the two of them had been together physically in the same room because of COVID and other things um, since The Dobbs leak. They had to be at court because there was a a judicial conference or something. And wow, that was interesting. And I couldn't not ask them a question at some point about that because that's the proverbial elephant in the room. This is on YouTube. So our audience can see it. But the first set of questions that I actually asked them, I said to the audience, audience, you need to know that I consider each of these people my friend. Um, And I like them personally and I respect them. And I respect the court. And this is true. And I said, and, and I don't say that about all my students, including all my powerful students, four of whom are, are senators in the United States. But I say, I really respect the court as an institution. I do. And I respect you both. And I like you as human beings. And here's what I think is great. You're in the same room together. Will you commit yourselves going forward? This is the first question I ask to doing some joint events together. You talked earlier about pairing because I said, I think it's good for the country to see that even though you vote on different um, sides in important cases, that you actually are friends, you respect each other, and you should go to actually organizations together. So it shouldn't. Always be Sonia Sotomayor going to the liberal American Constitution Society and Amy Coney Barrett always going to the conservative Federalist Society. That's about access. You see, there's no money changing hands or all the rest. I don't love it when Amy Coney Barrett only goes to Fedsoc. And when Sonia Sotomayor only goes to ACS and, and, and I like them both. You see, I really do. And I loved it that the two of them were together and they committed to doing that. That was my very first question, Andy. The audience can see this and they committed to doing that. And I'm told that they've done that and good for them. But this is, this is connected to your access point. Forget money. It's just like, whom are you actually going to black tie dinners with a poker night with? Right. So but
0: of course and getting back to this relationship between disclosure and recusal, I think that disclosure has gives us another piece of information which is when the justice fails to disclose. So when so in other words now we have and I know you don't want to you know get too you know much into the specifics of I don't. Justice Thomas's you know, you know because I don't know you know but, I don't know a lot of the facts. Right. But what we do know for just just for one thing, is that there were a lot of you know private jet rides, right, and and that these they had a, a very high monetary value. If he had, would have had to pay for them himself, himself, although of course he could have flown
1: commercial, it would have been less exactly. money. Exactly. But- so I read in the newspaper: this is a half a million dollars worth of. Well, would you have paid that, or would you have gone coach? Mm-hmm. Right. Well,
0: and I recognize that, but yeah. still, the, you know, the, nevertheless, there. Was- oh, and
1: and one other thing, just so the world understands this. Andy, if you and you and I, you know, have flown together a lot, okay, and we, we and we have audience, oh some real stories to tell. I'm not going to you know spill all the beans, but there there there's some fun travel stories, car trips, plane trips together. I'm not a recognizable figure, but. Some of the justices are, there are some security issues. They probably have to have marshals with them and other things. There are security issues if they fly commercial. Uh, so I don't know all the complexities there, but I suspect there are issues um, for them that you and I don't face when we're trying to get from here to there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and all the all these are fair points. But notwithstanding that, wasn't this stuff was not disclosed. Whatever the value yeah. was, it certainly had value. Um, and... So that raises a question. Why not? Do does do we really believe and maybe we do. I mean, you know, you 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 trust I suppose your friend, but um I'm a very loyal friend, Andy. Yes.
1: But I mean, and you know, and, the, and that's why I'm I'm giving the audience full disclosure, okay? Cuz I wouldn't be credible if I somehow didn't tell them that I'm a friend of certain people and I'm a loyal friend and I tend as a loyal friend to not lightly assume the worst about a friend. And the facts stare me in the face, of course, but just what has been said is the regulation was about personal, had an exception for personal hospitality. And how does one understand that category? There are further complexities. And let me walk you through a set of hypotheticals as if this were sort of a law school class and we can see some of the issues. And the conclusion of these Hypotheticals are going to be oh, when it comes to money, there are going to be sometimes issues of valuation. How much is actually you know a, a Bombardier flight worth? A yacht trip? Um, what's what is actual genuine the value of it? It's is it um, uh, what you would have had to pay? What someone else would have paid? Blah blah blah. But also we're going to see the distinctions between the rules about access being slightly different and, and issues about access being different from issues about money being different from issues about ex-party communication. So in these hypotheticals, Akil's a judge and Andy's a doctor, and they've been boyhood friends, but for many years they were in different parts of the country. And then Andy moves near Akeel. So this is great. They can get together a lot and they begin to have a tradition. Akele has Andy over for a birthday dinner every year, because uh, their birthdays are about the same time of year. They actually are, September, and, and we like to celebrate them together, and this is great. Now, I would think there'd be no issue whatsoever if I have you over. I'm the judge, and I'm hosting you, and obviously there's nothing to disclose, and and, and there's no never we're ne- never any litigation where you're involved. It's just we're you friends, and to, I'm hosting you. So You have to disclose the
0: rugelach that I brought over for the snack. <laughs>
1: So, no, listen, make it nice and clean. You don't bring anything. Okay. You want Wendy come over. Um, so, well, now it's totally it would obviously be. It would, yes. I'm, I'm going to get more realistic, Andy. Um, <laughs> it would obviously be inappropriate. For you to try to bring up a, a pending case and and spin me on it, and influence on, uh, on me, and it would actually be equally inappropriate if I brought the issue up and said, "Andy, here's a case. I'm th- uh, you know this come before the court. You know what do you think?" And even if I asked you, this is an ex party communication. It's by hypothesis, maybe influencing me, helping you to think about a pending case. Opposing counsel isn't being notified by this and doesn't have an opportunity to rebut whatever argument you you make to me. Um, so it has nothing to do with the disclosure under the regulations. It has nothing really to do with any gift or uh, money that you're giving to me in any way, shape or form. But it's utterly inappropriate, this ex-party communication. Now, some time, and you see that's the issue. Some time passes and you say, Akilah, I love you, you know, but, but truthfully, your house is a bit of a hovel. My house is a little nicer. Why don't we do it at my place? Oh, and by the way, Wendy is... Truthfully, you know, nothing, nothing against you, you know, obviously nothing against Beneath, it, but, but Wendy is really a gourmet um, and she loves actually cooking. And so let's do it at my place. Great. And it would be weird to think that I have to report that fair market value of, of the meal or something. We'd say either a de minimis or we'd say under the regulations, this is personal hospitality. This is exact, you know, a definition of personal hospitality. And there's no disclosure requirement. But of course, same rules apply. We're not supposed to talk about cases. It doesn't matter, you know, if it's my place or your place. Okay, C- a couple years pass. Your practice is doing really well. You're a gourmet. I am not. And you actually now invite, you know, some great chef to cater the meal. You know, if I knew chefs, you know, no names, but all I know, is Chef Boyardee. <laughs> okay, but but um, um, and Chef Boyardee is an expensive chef. You know, he he charges a, a lot and. Um, Now, do I have to report the fair market value of this might be actually, you know, somewhat significant if it's a Chef Boyardee catered meal and he's some famous chef, but probably under the regulations, you know, and I'm not an expert, but this, again, might come under the personal hospitality exception because this is at your home. And and it's just now if you had taken me out to a restaurant. And we went to Chef Boyardee's restaurant. Rather than Chef Boyardee coming to your home, it might actually be very different. And and Andy, you know, you hosted me at a birthday party at a wonder. You, me and Vinita at a at a wonderful restaurant, Chinese restaurant in New York. You, you can tell everyone the name. I can't remember what it was. It was spectacular. Oh,
0: This was at Sun Lee West which actually is the subject of a very interesting article in the New York Times because another suddenly opened and it turns out that it's uh, maybe some kind of trademark infringement or something, but anyway. (laughs) Okay.
1: Okay. But, but I'm not, see, I'm not making up these hypotheticals and whenever we get together for these birthday dinners, you actually tend to like to pick a nice place, you know, and if you paid for the whole thing and I were a judge, Oh, now we're starting to have some issues because that may not be de minimis. If it were an expensive meal, and 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 it's maybe not personal hospitality if it takes place in a restaurant, okay? But if it were your home, it might be different under the the, the regulations and it might just come into the personal hospitality exception. But no matter what, whether it's in my hovel, you know or in a restaurant or your house, we shouldn't be talking about cases, okay. Now some time passes and you actually say, kill you know, I just bought this cute little fishing shack. A couple hours away and there's a beautiful little lake in the country. Come for the weekend and, and we'll just get away from it all. And I say, sure, that sounds great, but it's going to take me a while to get there. Uh, and you say... What are you talking about? You know, I'm I'm driving and you can just catch a ride with me. But it's zero marginal cost to you. You are going there anyway. And it's not just transportation. This is part of the road trip, you know, part of the fun. We're spending time together, getting there, you know, spending time there and then coming back. And and Andy, we've done these and these aren't hypotheticals. We do this. okay? Okay. and it would fall. I would think this is what law professors, you just change the, the factual hypothetical a little bit each time and see, like, when does it make a difference? So I would say that seems like the personal hospitality exception. Now, would it matter if if three years have passed? Your practice, your medical practice is really doing well. I'm still a poor public servant judge, you know, with a civil service salary. Justices don't make tons of money compared to other private lawyers. You know, they're they're law school classmates. They write their autobiographies. Yeah, but people buy them one by one. Their classmates might be making millions of dollars a year at top law schools, and and they might be making two hundred fifty thousand dollars on the Supreme Court, which is very, very you know, good living for compared to ordinary Americans, but not compared to their law school classmates. Yeah, although actually, um, we, we should
0: we should say that this this raises a question for probably for another occasion, but yeah, they write their biog- their autobiography and then interest groups buy up, you know, 40,000 copies of it.
1: It's a great thing. And we, and I do want to talk about that. And, and I'm pitching my book right now to publishers. So I definitely want to think about, you know, how one sells copies and audience members. You can help me with that. We will we'll talk about that maybe just a bit. If you can just word of mouth, get the word out. Now you're doing a little bit better. And instead of you're driving, you hire a car service. Well, now it's a little different that, you know, should I pay my pro rate a share of the cars? And again, you were going to do it anyway. I'm just catching a ride with you. And we were able to talk on, on the way up and the way back, but we actually have an amount and you're, you're actually hiring someone. So that might be an issue, or maybe it's the personal hospitality. Well, it seems to me, that's pretty now, analogous to whether or not you pay for some of the
0: gas when I drive in, in my own car.
1: But that might be de minimis. It's just a smaller amount. You're going to pay for more. There are two different issues, the personal hospitality exception and the de minimis exception. Now, actually, you've made it so much that you don't just have a limo service. You actually have your own personal driver. You know, your your butler, your your chauffeur, your, your Jeeves. Now, you're paying that person no matter what. They're on call. You know, the, the car is at your disposal. It's zero marginal cost to you. It's you know, zero marginal cost to me, but do we prorate it? Because if we do, that actually might be a substantial uh, amount, and should I be paying my fair share? Or does that fall within the personal hospitality exception? Because yes. you're my friend, and now That's like you have Spen- a chalet. It's so, not to- so Spencer Tracy,
0: in judgment at Nuremberg, is a just, is a judge at the uh, Nuremberg trial, and they give him a driver and a car in Nuremberg. Mm-hmm. And Marlena mm-hmm. Dietrich, who's the widow of... Uh, a Nazi that was hung by a previous Nuremberg tribunal befriends him, mm-hmm. and he asks the driver to drive her home so <laughs> so there's your analogy,
1: and I have to see that movie again. I only saw it a long time ago, and of course, our friend Telford Taylor was an actual prosecutor at Nuremberg, and the oldest prosecutor at Nuremberg just passed away this week, according to yes. news accounts at age hundred and three the oldest living prosecutor
0: yeah he's a big ad he was an advocate of. International tribunals in general, like the International Criminal Court. And, and uh, as
1: was the great Telford Taylor, and our audience can listen to the tribute essay to the great Telford Taylor, our tribute uh, episode. Now, though, you have a chalet, and it's not two, a two hour drive, it's in Montana, but it's a spectacular place, several hundred acres spread, beautiful uh, lake, and uh, that's always stocked or something. And now we have to fly. Oh, but not to worry, because Andy has actually a jet. Um, I like this at his, uh, hypothetical. So, Yes. Okay. Um, and you're going to go anyway on the jet and zero marginal cost. And, and when you're on the jet, we can talk. You've got your own pilot who's at your beck and call. But now it's not de minimis anymore, perhaps. And the question is, do we say that's a $20,000 or $50,000, you know, gift in kind that you're giving to me? But I would never pay that. I, you know, worse, I would just, you know, go commercial. That's maybe a thousand dollars fifteen hundred dollars because i know i wouldn't pay fifty thousand dollars but we wouldn't be able to spend the time together because part of the idea is you know we are spending time going there spending time coming back i'm losing half the value of of the andy akil experience if i have to go separately from you you're going to go on your your jet two issues it does this fall is this de minimis well now it probably may not be de minimis even if it's just the saved commercial airfare, cause that's a thousand dollars rather than to get to the fishing shack is, you know, $150 Uber or something. But now we're talking about $1,500 of plane fare. So that's the, that's the de minimis issue. But the second issue is, is this personal hospitality too? Because this is just, you know, Andy's house, you know, as it were, you know, in the air. It's not just transportation. It's. You and me together, Mm -hmm. you know, as friends, but no matter what, whether it's in my little hovel or in a restaurant or at your house or on your plane or yacht, we should never be talking about cases, okay? Because that's ex parte. Now, here's what our conversation has helped me see that I didn't see a couple of hours ago when we were actually you know, talking about the issue. You know what's really important on access? What's the most important issue on access? I would say is probably the law clerk's access to the justices, because you actually are allowed to talk to some people ex parte, to your colleagues, the lawyers aren't there, okay, to yourself, not your spouse. That's You're not supposed to talk about the cases, even with your spouse, although as a practical matter, I, I suspect it probably happens, but you're not supposed to. You're, uh, of course, allowed to talk to your law clerks. And the lawyers aren't there. This is ex parte, but it's part of a system. They are on the up and up there. I know they're on the government payroll. There are all sorts of rules about them. But now, actually, Andy, here's actually what Akilah is seeing, is seeing in this because of this conversation that he wasn't seeing before. I think best practice is actually to try to structure your clerkship so that you're hearing from folks of different points of view rather just like i wanted justice sotomayor and justice barrett to do some things together rather than justice barrett only talking to FedSoc folks and justice sotomayor only talking to american constitution society which is left-leaning acs folks you know i'd rather that they do things together and they talk to 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 joint acs Fed stock audiences or something. Well, similarly, I think it would be good. And it's not the world today where justices are getting law clerks across the spectrum. Early in his tenure on the court, Justice Scalia used to hire one liberal law clerk. They called him the devil's advocate or the devil's advocate or something. Justice Scalia stopped doing that. And I think that was unfortunate. One of the things that I liked the most about then Judge Kavanaugh, and I mentioned it In my confirmation hearing's uh, uh, testimony is that Justice Kavanaugh, in my experience, had hired law clerks from across the political spectrum when he was on the D.C. circuit. And I thought that was a good practice. So what you're saying here is that you
0: want the clerks to sort of stand in because their communication with the judges is ex parte. You want there to be someone that's sort of a stand in for the for the advocates on both sides. So that there, yeah, there's and an for opportunity the society, to respond to the to the arguments that are being that are made on one side more or the other. general.
1: And so so because so access is important. You're right, and there's access that's permissible, like when I access the court by filing an amicus brief, or I access the court by writing an op-ed or a book. None of that's ex parte because that's all public to the world. But now when we're talking about ex parte communication. Oh, that's the law clerks, and I think the better practice would be across the board. Now, is a justice ever permitted to? Let's imagine that no one initiates contact with a justice. Let's imagine that a justice actually initiates. Justice wants to hear from an expert. Can a justice call up an academic expert and say, "I have a case. It's a difficult antitrust case. You're an antitrust scholar. I'm not. You know, can you? Can, what do you think?" That's awkward. Um, And justices, I think the practices do not do that. There are two, I think, wrinkles, because this is a Marcus Constitution where I'm actually trying to describe the ecosystem, you know, how things really work to a general audience. I think there may be two exceptions. Here's what a justice, I think, might be allowed to do. Call someone up. Say, so don't want you please to tell me, you know, your views on a certain case that's under consideration. That would be improper. But it is permissible for you to tell me, here's the issue in the case. Have you or anyone that you know written about this that's out there in the, the, the public domain that would be helpful for, for me or my law clerks to read? It seems to me that's not really a violation of the, the deep idea because by hypothesis, these are articles, or books, or arguments, or op eds, or what have you, that are already out there and and they're available to, to anyone. Does the court um, so itself pro-
0: employ a librarian or a researcher that's available to all of the? Uh, oh yes. Clerks? Oh yeah, of course. They so have why couldn't you staff. just
1: ask them? Because they might not be as expert as a certain academic might might be. There's a nice question about former clerks. And uh, they're not your current clerks, but you hired them before there's a certain special relationship, um, certain uh, as a practical amount of confidentiality that might be sort of a lifelong relationship. Would it ever be permissible, especially for, you know, to, to reach out to a former clerk? That's a nice question. The bottom line I'm getting at, though, is that there's a because
0: the lack of disclosure appears to not pass the laugh test. Um, according to, to some people, you know, that, that have read the... Pro, and certainly ProPublica thought it was important enough to publish a big article about. Right. Um, um, but, th- but they so have give, their inter- well, interests of their own to hype
1: it, of right. course.
0: No, of course. But nevertheless, there's it's possible that in the end, this, it, this is kind of uh, reaches a level of absurdity regarding, you know, lack of disclosure. And if that's the case, then when you combine that... With the fact that we don't know what they talked about, and that you know there's a lot of access here, um, it raises it raises questions. And then I think that well, hang on, hang on, Andy.
1: Um, on that, I'll push back a little bit. They have denied talking about things, and I think that needs to be in, in the record. That because um, you know they can't prove the negative, mm-hmm. but I'm going to ordinarily take people at their word unless there's some evidence to the contrary. Um, and well, that's exactly um, my and, point. Hang, hang on. So so this is what they said. Don't treat me as some sort of disreputable person because uh, I didn't disclose, because actually there's a question mark about the scope of this personal hospitality exception. Okay. So you're saying there's no question mark at all. I'm saying, Andy, that's what the people whom you read say, but I don't know that if that's what everyone says, and I'm not I'm actually not an expert on this regulation. No, okay. I didn't
0: say that. I didn't say that. I said it's possible that it right. uh, that it doesn't that that it's. I mean, there's certainly going to be some level of
1: right. Imagine. But even if there's a failure to disclose, as long as they didn't talk about things, then then what there is is a, a failure to disclose. But it doesn't really go to any any further than that. And it would be v- very problematic. See, let's just let's be analytic about this. Let's imagine that they didn't disclose and they should have disclosed, but they never talked about the case. That's much, much better than even if there had been no obligation of disclosure, because money didn't change hands or something else, or it fell actually within the personal hospitality exception, even narrowly understood, but they actually talked about something. That's a real problem. You see, that's an ex-party communication. Again, the problems now are not just recusal, which you've talked about, but now we've identified identified additional candidate. These are why the conversations are helpful, Andy. We didn't re- re- pre-rehearse everything. Ex-party communications are a very, very big problem if they occurred. Very big. But that's true whether or not it happened, you know, in someone's house right? Um, so- and, 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 a, and a little hovel, you know, you know, or a modest house, your house or my house, rather than some great mansion.
0: I understand that but what I'm saying is that it's it's possible you know this this information has come out we didn't know it before it's possible we could get more information let's say we get information that leads us to to believe that in fact the justice did understand that he should have disclosed it but he
1: didn't so that there and there would some, be an intentional non-disclosure, right, exactly. and that so raises then and, and, and intent is often very important in the law.
0: That's what I'm getting at here: is that if if you if you get a when it seems to be an absurd level of non-disclosure, I'm not saying that it is an absurd level, or even that it seems to be, but you could imagine a scenario where it seems to be an absurd level of non-disclosure that would raise questions, and then. That in turn would raise questions about whether or not one could believe that they didn't talk about anything. You know, if you're gonna lie, right. don't you think that the justice has a higher responsibility to think about these things at a greater level of sophistication than like than I would, you know, or something like that? So, they so be that thinking we should of hold this, is, this a, is
1: important stuff. So we should be holding across him, the board.
0: So we should be holding him to a much higher standard of compliance with disclosure regulations than we would like an applicant for, you know, some, you know, government job or something like that, because he, as a justice is, you know, his response, he should know the precedents. He should know what other judges have said about what personal hospitality is. I I, I
1: don't know what the precedents are, and and you haven't cited uh, precedent to me yet.
0: Right. Well, I was reading one, an article which said that actually there's been discussion in courts about what personal hospitality is, and it, uh, and they've actually well, been then I'd have to Well, I'd have to look at those right. precedents, well, which I haven't. Right. But at any rate, I'm just talking about the standard now that we would hold him to. Would we hold him to a higher standard of familiarity with the precedents, whatever they might
1: be? Than we would the average government appointment. We, um, I think, justices should, would be well advised to actually have opinion of counsel on these questions, especially now going forward. Okay. I think that would that would have been the best thing to do. To actually, you know, literally hire a lawyer to advise you on these rules because they're important. Okay. I, I They should be taken seriously.
0: Okay. Good. So look, you know, we've been talking about this for a long time, and I yes, um, and right, well, and there's a lot more to talk about on this. So, but uh, in the interest of our audience, i we're going to take uh, a break for uh, for our next, uh, and we'll continue it uh, in our next episode. Um, okay. So, and we'll go, and we'll also go into a lot of this other stuff that we talked about, right? Because there are
1: other there are other judges and other ethical issues, you know, and, and sometimes on the other side of the political spectrum, And so other we,
0: things uh, in the news right